Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to episode 121 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast given a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart. So Andy, after a month, a full month, an entire calendar month full of excellent guests, uh, it is once again time for an Andy vs. Mitch episode. Should we be bragging about that? Because essentially that's what this show's supposed to be. It's very true. Yeah, I guess so. And it's time for the monthly Andy vs. Mitch episode, I guess. Which, you're right, is not something to be trumpeted about, it's just time for it again. <laughs> but then we've only decided to install this as a thing because we want to buy ourselves some breathing room and organising guests. I mean, yeah, I suppose that is true. God, people didn't have to know that, though. Um, <laughs> so we did crunch the numbers on the minisode last week and we did realise that there'd been a little bit of a shortfall for mm. some reason somewhere along the line we'd fallen out of sequence so despite the fact that the last andy versus mitch episode was you specifically uh, beyond the door yes yes um, you're welcome yeah <laughs> um it was time for you to pick again so uh you have gone for 1981's bloody birthday i have yeah so talk to me about this one <laughs> Uh, what exactly do you want to know? Well, I mean, just the usual, Andy. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you came across it, why it was your first choice? Bloody Birthday's a film that I only came to about 10 years ago. Okay. And right away, I was won over by it. It's quite a quirky, weird little film, but it's also quite offensive and mean-spirited. But it's also kind of fun in that kind of early slashery way. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. Um, I just I just really, really love it and I think um, it really should have more eyes on it. People should talk about Bloody Birthday more because I feel that it's been kind of forgotten and kind of swept under the rug to an extent. And yeah, it's available now on Amazon Prime and 88 Films have got a Blu-ray out. But I still don't feel like enough people have seen it and are talking about it because it's. I actually think it's a really great little film from that really weird time period. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously, I mean, like, I have no context about these things. I mean, like, you suggest something, I haven't seen it, I watch it. Okay. Like, that's how this works in the Andy versus Mitch episodes, you know? But just this past week, literally, like, just at the weekend before we announced this, Laura Bynan on Facebook in the Chudlocker was like, has anyone seen Bloody Birthday? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the response to it wasn't massive. It seems like people haven't seen this. And I kind of alluded to the fact that it may be coming up on the show. So it was interesting to realise that this is broadly underseen, presumably by most people. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, I think that's fair to say. I've, I've spoken to a lot of people over the years about Bloody Birthday, and um, very few of them have ever heard of it, or let alone seen it. And I actually tweeted a couple of weeks ago, I think, um, just saying that more people should see Bloody Birthday, more people should be talking about Bloody Birthday. And uh, yeah, I stand by that. I really do think it's quite a cool little film. I mean, like, not to give away what I think about it, I mean, I largely think that there should be more eyes on this as well. And it gives me... I think yeah no definitely like i think this is a really interesting film i think that um i love how hard it commits to the fact that the kids in this the central antagonists are just straight up sociopaths oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> like i really i really like how just like how 
unapologetic the film was about that and how hard it leans into that skid. There's also no mystery about it. Like it's not like a slasher film in so much as there's a who done it element to it. There's none of that at all. It's closer, I suppose, to like a later days Friday the thirteenth film where you know who the killer is because you see them constantly. Yeah, yeah, like that's addressed very early on. And like and I think that I think that's quite a cool thing. It feels like and I haven't seen enough stuff contextually to know for sure, but it feels like such an interesting spin on the kind of like psycho kid or the creepy kid angle. Yeah, there's not a lot of films willing to go down this road certainly not this hard i don't think uh, the only couple of things that kind of spring to mind are things like i suppose children of the corn i have written down children of the corn in my notes a couple of times cool. yeah. um who can kill a child uh or even okay. more recently than both of those the children mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. Uh, but, he says not knowing what you're talking about <laughs> but very few films are willing to commit to the killer kids thing quite as heavily as bloody birthday does yeah i think it's very resolute and i think it's to the film's infinite credit that it does however before we go any further i have put 30 seconds on the clock i thought you might have yeah um i did it i did it on my new laptop which took me a second to figure out but i've Brag. got it it's ready yeah <laughs> those patreon dollars are really paying off <laughs> <laughs> now available for uh scoring any projects big or small yeah so of course 30 second synopsis time I, i'm guessing that a few people are going to be listening to this having not seen bloody birthday so how are you feeling about giving us a 30 second synopsis about that absolutely fine absolutely fine pretty confident i would say you're giving it that strong philip carroll jr vibe of knowing this film inside out <laughs> Uh, okay, three, two, one, go. Three babies are simultaneously born in the same hospital at the peak of a full solar eclipse. Ten years later, these adorable youngsters suddenly begin a kiddie killing spree of strangling, shooting, stabbings, beatings and beyond. Can the town's grown-ups stop these pint-sized serial killers before their blood-soaked birthday bash? <laughs> Gotta be honest with you, Mitch, I had the Blu-ray sitting next to me and I just read it off the back. <laughs> I was gonna say. I mean, I felt like that was very, um, that was very, very literate and very alliterative. Yeah. So fun. I was suspicious that you maybe had, uh, you maybe had some help with it because you did manage it in nineteen seconds as well. <sighs> right. Let's battle in. So for one thing, what I would say is I didn't expect the opening sequence to this to be quite so tranquil. Oh yeah, gentle piano intro, um, leading us into a horrible little film. Uh yeah. Uh huh. However, what I did like was that we opened on Medville General Hospital on June 9th, 1970. Sure. I like the fact that this almost certainly was a prelude to a chronology hop. Um, <laughs> I like the way that the opening to this is presented. So we see an important-looking man arriving at a hospital after seeing a full moon. And then what we get is this long look at this full moon and this eclipse where we hear the sound, I guess, of three children being born. Yeah, they're born largely simultaneously, as far as I'm led to understand, uh, which has given them some kind of connection. I don't understand any of this astrology stuff. This film leans quite heavily into the astrology stuff at times, uh, and it's just it's all over my head. Yeah, I feel like it's. I feel like it leans quite strongly into the astrology thing, to the sense that I feel like it should be more thematic and central than it is. It's only ever brought up and really in reference to Joyce's homework. Yeah, exactly. It's hinted at some certain things, but I don't think it, it never is hinted at to such an extent that it really figures in the story. But what we do get from this opening sequence is that we um, we hear doctors pronouncing genders and families. So to Mrs. Taylor, a boy. To Mrs. Brody, a girl. To Mrs. Seaton, another boy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, do you remember when Donald Trump looked at an eclipse? Directly at it. Looks yeah. right at it. Yep, leader of the free world right there. 
Uh, yep. However, predictably, we do get a chronology hop, a direct 10-year chronology hop, no less. And at this point, we join two punk kids, or at least punk adolescents, Annie Smith and Duke Benson. Got to say, it's not a direct 10-year chronology hop. We're nine years and 51 weeks. Of course, yeah, of course, because, yeah, we need a little bit of build-up to the film's central event, I guess. But we do see Annie Smith and Duke Benson making out in a graveyard. Duke? Duke? I've never met anyone called Duke. I'm not convinced they exist. I've never met anybody, certainly, with that first name. In fact, I don't think I've ever met anybody with that nickname either. I think the only creatures I've met called Duke are dogs. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's probably fair. So he's playing the ambulance game with mm. uh, Annie Smith, which is uh, a terrible game. <laughs> I don't understand the rules. It seems like it's, what is it, red light, green light? Is that what it's called? Well, I mean, like, the, the, the rules are quite rapey, really, because <laughs> he's he's basically like, um like, the ambulance is going to run up your leg, the ambulance is my hand, yeah, um, yeah. and you're going to say red light when you need me to stop, so he does that, and she says red light when she needs him to stop, and then he says, oh, ambulances don't stop for red lights, um, mm. and then carries on. Uh, so, yeah, I would say that, like, Duke not selling himself as the most likable character in the first instance, but I mean, like, yeah, like, wh- whatever my moral misgivings of the character are, will soon be a moot point, because he'll be dead soon, and so will she. Hooray! <laughs> Result. Um, so yeah, they um, head off into a freshly dug grave to shag? Mm, no, I don't mind alfresco sex, right? If that's what you want to do, if you want to get cold and have sand in your ass crack, then fire away. By all means, be my guest. But yeah. I don't know, there's just something about dirt that doesn't appeal to me, about mud in graves i've never been one of those guys who's like oh we should go and fuck in a graveyard that to me that does nothing for me but to me that's just like well no yeah i mean like it's not a huge uh, usp for me either but thanks for clearing that up but i don't want ghosts watching me banging it's true yeah yeah no like like i like i don't need any more than the minimum amount of eyes on that <laughs> i can tolerate the standard house ghost that every house has right <laughs> But what I refuse to do is open myself up to criticism by a graveyard full of spectres. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to be graded by like some sort of belligerent Victorian housemaid. <laughs> Times have changed. Sex has changed. Don't come in here with your rough on and judge me. It happens to every guy. <laughs> But yeah, they start shagging in a freshly dug grave, for want of a better expression or description. Um, But someone starts burying them alive. The minute that Duke starts um, investigating this, uh, he is clubbed not to death, but to unconsciousness with a shovel. Quite funny. By an off... Yeah, I think funny. Yeah, by an off-screen assailant. And uh, the woman gets choked. Uh, Annie gets choked. A pretty effective opening... I would say it sets the scene reasonably well for the kind of weird shit the film is about to do. Sure, yeah, I would agree. And we do jump to uh, what is going to be kind of like some of our central main characters. We meet Joyce here, who um, settles down with headphones in to eat a sandwich that looks physically dirty. <laughs> uh, the headphones again are those enormous. It's like having two ghetto blasters strapped to your head. Aye, pretty heavy duty. But yeah, like the, the sandwich looks like she's just fished out of that grave. Also doing astrology homework i touched on this earlier i didn't think astrology was something that was kind of openly taught in schools out with hogwarts uh no i would say that it's like quite a niche subject choice to me as well like the one person at school that wants to take classical studies (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly now there's quite a good fake out jump scare here Mm -hmm. because we see someone creeping in through the window 
And uh, we kind of assume that it's going to be the same assailant that we've just seen carry out the atrocities, the opening scene. As it turns out, atrocities, yeah. Um, But as it turns out, it's a fake out. It's her brother, Timmy. Yeah, Timmy. We come to learn later why he's out creeping about in the middle of the night. But uh, at this point in time, he doesn't really have much of an excuse other than he was feeding the dog. Yeah, not not a a massive amount to say. And we don't need to know much about Timmy to know that that is bullshit. (laughs) However, we pinball straight out of this into our first look at Thomas Jefferson Elementary. So we have a sheriff here giving um, a speech to a class. Um, at this point, I thought it was like a bring your dad to school day kind of thing, career day. Okay, okay, because he is Debbie's dad. Yeah, and I mean, and obviously we don't know that either at this point. But like, I was just like, oh, this policeman is giving a career day speech to this class. And then he's like, do any of you kids know what murder is? And I was like, right. <laughs> no, then? <laughs> is he not also Chief Brody? Uh, yes, I believe so. I, be- I think that everything that came after Jaws, if you name the head of police Brody, feels like a nod to jaws reasonable i would say yeah but he's he's digging in to the uh, smith benson murders <laughs> sure the smith sure. benson graveyard murders he immediately asks if any of the kids were in the cemetery that night um my question is does he think that any of these 10 year olds off this couple well yeah because he's got good reason to believe that because what he found in the grave was the end of a skipping rope yeah but i think it would take superhuman strength for a 10 year old to knock someone out with a shovel and choke a grown adult woman to death with a kind of length of rope i'm just willing i'm saying look i'm willing to put this out to testing in a mythbusters type way Perhaps there's something we could set up where we hire a child and get him to donk a mannequin on the head with a shovel and we measure the force. I think a child could knock you out with a shovel. Okay, I feel like this might be the work of Dr. Lauren. (laughs) Yep, Lauren, reach out. Could you be knocked out by a child swinging a shovel down in an arc into a grave into your face? And could a 10-year-old choke out an adult woman with a length of rope from, like, four feet above them? 100%. So we realise at this point that Joyce is a classroom assistant in this room. I'm I'm saying classroom assistant, teaching assistant, something like that. Her brother Timmy is in this class, as are Debbie, Curtis, and Steve, who are the three kids that were all born in the opening sequence. Yeah, that's right. So what I would say is Debbie, Curtis, and Steve are all middle-aged people's names, which I think is an interesting trend that has carried on from your last selection. Beyond the door, where I think that we had like a eight year old that was called like Keith, <laughs> sure, yeah, or something like that. Um, but yeah, so we learn that their birthday is on the horizon, their tenth birthday. They, I would say, very ambitiously ask for a homework break because of the triple bill birthday party that is on the horizon. Well, they ask for a homework break for the whole class, which is interesting that they would do that because they they're not the nicest of children. Yeah, they don't show themselves to be particularly altruistic after that. I wouldn't say. <laughs> See that thing the teacher does where she goes. Um, the bell is for me, it's not for you. Yeah. That brought back memories to me because I had a teacher who used to do that every single day. It set my teeth on edge. Yep. I yep. Will, it's, it's, for, it's not for you to dismiss yourself, it's for me to dismiss you or something. <laughs> I love that all teachers have got the same part. It's, it's extended the length of Scotland because I've had that as well. Or I had that certainly. Um, when I was at school. Yeah, the film sells us pretty hard on these kids being shite bags almost immediately because um, we do get the next thing that happens, which is that everyone goes to Debbie's house uh, where she charges Curtis and Steve and Nicola Leach to watch her older sister Beverly undress through a spy hole. Uh, This is just kind of childhood antics here, I think. Uh, But what I will say is Beverly, whether she knows they're there or not, is putting on quite the show. Certainly, yeah, yeah. I would say that this scene is probably longer than it needs to be. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
it feels very much again like that Danzig thing of uh, just keep dancing just keep dancing we won't use it all because they're like throwing props at her at one point she's got like a feather boa yeah it all, get, it all gets very quite showy really after a while but yeah it's established at this point that the sheriff is Beverly and Debbie's dad who is not long for this world I kind of assumed that he might be around for a little bit longer to investigate the killings and things like that not so <laughs> I know what you're coming to here but just before you get to it there's a scene that is almost lifted wholesale from Halloween where mm-hmm. Debbie and Joyce are walking down the street and they're chatting and they're just you're kind of getting a flavour of their relationship and what life's like for them and what their life's like at school and the people at school and the dad rolls up in his police car and they have an interaction through the car window there's a scene almost exactly the same as that in Halloween with mm-hmm. um Sheriff Brackett and the girls. Ah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So the next day, the attempts that the kids make to kill uh, the sheriff are pretty transparent, but they do eventually manage it. Not the way they planned. They, I think they went for a far more transparent accident, in inverted commas. Yeah, I think that the thing that they go for um, originally is far more designed to look like an accident uh, because Debbie calls him outside and they've set up the skateboard that he can trip on, maybe bash his head on something. Uh, ultimately, he steps past that much to their chagrin. So instead what happens is that Steve emerges from the bushes and just beats him repeatedly with a baseball bat. He's lying there motionless, presumably dead. Debbie calls for the mom and says daddy fell, which may not match the pattern of the injuries given that he was hit in the head about six times. And there's only three steps. Uh-huh. Yeah, he, like, he would have had to have fallen down those steps a minimum of twice. Down once, gone back up, then dive back down again. Yeah, exactly. But he's deed and we know this immediately because we fire off to Sheriff Brody's funeral, which has the most rainbow-coloured spectrum of mourner attire that I've ever seen. One kid's dressed like a straight-up cowboy. <laughs> but yeah, this is the first of a couple of sad funerals that we have to be at for uh, Debbie's mom. <laughs> that poor fucking woman, by the way. Yeah, she's the real victim in this, by the way. Um, Fighting off to a junkyard straight after that, though, for a game of hide-and-seek with Timmy and the children of the corn. Curtis locks Timmy inside a fridge, leaves him for dead <laughs> during yeah. this game. And at this point, we, we cut away and we see Joyce talking, like you say, more about astrological bad luck that befalls entire countries at once. And I think it is interesting that this film sows loads of seeds about astrology. It never really figures a massive amount, but it's just, it's it's constantly there. It's like that thing in Split Second where, like, um, every minute there was to cram in exposition about that and this kind of theological thing. It just does it, but it's not really to any obvious payoff. Yeah, it's just like a, another weird little thing to to sell, I guess, the connection that these kids have got and the connection, yeah. I suppose, that they're being born with Saturn, Saturn being... I don't, I don't fucking know. It, it's it's a quirk. It's I a just, quirk that we just that we just need to indulge. Sure, but I just like the fact that they're horrible little bastards. They really are horrible cunts, aren't they? <laughs> um, so Timmy escapes from the fridge using some solid MacGyver tactics. I've got that written down here. He, Did you actually? That's class. Yeah, he's a smart kid. He carries a torch pen in his pocket. He manages to use a coin to undo some screws. That kid's out of there in no time, man. He's he's out of there quicker than David Blaine got out of that box. Yep, very impressive, I think. I really love the triumphant score when he like emerges from the fridge. And this feels like a good point to introduce the trivia. That Did you know like the first choice composer for this was James Horner? I did know that, yeah, but uh, there was budgetary reasons why he didn't get involved. Presumably... Stunned. <laughs> stunned by that revelation. Presumably the film had none and he wanted some. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, you can tell that that's the kind of thing they're shooting for here. And I think that there's quite a few times in this, actually, where I'm like, oh, the score feels like, not in a way that feels like it doesn't fit, 
Mm-hmm. But like you just look at things and you're just like, oh, this is unnecessarily grandiose for this moment. Yeah. Also, t- if this was made today, Timmy would have been out of that fridge in ten seconds. He'd have just texted his sister to come and get him. Yeah, I guess that's kind of part of the fun of watching things from this long ago, though, isn't it? It absolutely is. It was a simple time, Mitch. Exactly. And like after this, Timmy gets home. So Timmy escapes, flees home. Joyce, understandably, wants to know where he's been. He says he's been locked in a fridge. He escapes that fridge and walks across his garden and into his front door like the fucking legend that he is. <laughs> yeah, and I think that understandably probably like quite expectant of a hero's welcome, but he doesn't get that. And Joyce wants to know where he's been. Also casually accuses him of murder uh, <laughs> because she doesn't believe his alibi from uh, where he was when uh, Annie and Duke got murdered. Are we to believe then that Timmy has past form of being a liar? Because if so, it's never really touched on. It just comes across that Joyce is just super suspicious of her younger brother. Absolutely. He's framed like a pathological liar by the way that the other characters treat him in this. But what I think is funny is that she's like, all right, where were you the night that these murders happened? And he's like, oh, I was at Debbie's house. And she was like, why? He's like, Debbie wasn't there. And he basically just admits, he's like, uh, I was participating in Debbie's like pervy, lecherous, non-consensual sideshow where she charges people to spy on her older sister undressing. Uh, Joyce, despite being best pals with Beverly, is like weirdly charmed by this explanation. Well, I just think she's quite proud of her little brother. He's coming of age, he's grown up, he's going to have pubes soon. And it's like, ah, he's becoming a man. He'll soon be a horrible, problematic, awful man. <laughs> what I would say is that what happens next is that we get a good insight into precisely how sociopathic and how calculated these kids are. Sure. And I think that genuinely, I think that this is like a very successful through line through the entire film. Like, I love the fact that so much of what the kids do in this has such a measure of calculation to it. Yeah, absolutely. From, like... From the first time you see Chekhov's alarm system. Yeah, which is which is here. Yeah. Like yeah. um Well you see it, you actually yeah. see it before this, and then you get a kind of inkling before we even get here that Curtis is a kind of dab hand with electronics. Yeah, I think that it sells you very hard on the kinds of strength each of the three of them have. You know, like Debbie is very much kind of like the puppet master, but she very quickly absolves herself from all situations mm. the minute there's any kind of confrontation. Like you say, Curtis is kind of like the tech guy. It almost feels like Steve is like the heavy. Steve to me is the kind of outlier of the group. Steve to me is a bit of a nothing. But I actually think I think that Curtis, the or the performance of Curtis is brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah, genuinely like like and and I was talking about Vivarium last week. Mm. Where I was saying that I think that the performance of when the kid in Vivarium is circa seven years old, the performance of the kid is like incredible, just in the in the way that it gets under my skin in the way that a lot of creepy kid performances don't manage. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's very true of this as well. I think that the kid that plays Curtis in this is absolutely brilliant. Also, like genuinely, as we get to and we'll get to where that eventually goes, but I was so ready to see that kid under a bus. One hundred percent. And there's so much to be said for that. But yeah, like I say, I mean, like we, we get a real insight into kind of like the caliber of criminal mind that we're dealing with here. Because um, Debbie turns off their home security system. Curtis sneaks in, switches his toy gun with Sheriff Brody's revolver, and then the next thing we see is a couple of days later, where he shoots his teacher. Yeah, shoots on the back, kills her dead. Completely callous, completely cold. He's brilliant. Yeah, he's great. And I think that also, I mean, like, in the next thing that we see after uh, Miss Davids gets shot, Timmy confronting Curtis, presumably for the fridge debacle, which I would be mad about as well if I was Timmy. Absolutely. Um, punches fuck out of him. And <laughs> another teacher intervenes. I think this is class because, like, you just you start to see how capably these kids can paint themselves as the victims when they need to. 
that's that's really what Debbie's big role is here because she's this kind of angelic little blonde with pigtails and um, yeah no one's ever in a million years despite the fact that she's constantly got narrowed eyes and looks evil as fuck no one's ever going to directly go I think that little cute girl is doing all these murders yeah no she can withdraw herself from conflict in an absolute heartbeat and that's a really really cool thing I think Mm. so Joyce finds the teacher's body and then we see her getting a lift home and it's the first of a couple of instances where we realise that the actress that plays Joyce is terrible at crying on command <laughs> I won't lean too hard on that but um, she gets to the door and obviously like after the fridge debacle she has banned Timmy from playing in the junkyard she says a note on the door that is allegedly from Timmy saying that he's at the junkyard very naively does not realise that this is not from him doesn't realise that it's not his handwriting either <laughs> sure um, but she heads to the junkyard at this point where she is attacked with a car. Yeah, driven by a pint-sized psychopath and a burlap mask. Yeah, it's Steve with his co-pilot, Curtis. I think that the, the mask and stuff, I think it looks great. Like It's it's obviously just a bag with eyes cut in it, but it worked for Jason. No reason why it can't work for these kids. And I think it's quite an yeah. effective-looking thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's the kind of iconography you'd see again in things like The Orphanage later. Yeah, can I just say, right, in my adulthood, right, I've never punched a child. Okay, good to know. Um, but I would not hesitate to punch these children right in their fucking faces. Particularly Curtis. Kid is asking for it this entire time. He's, I would punch fuck oh, out of that kid. He's always got that little smirk on his face as well, which is just like, just like ah, someone, someone smash a tumbler over his head. Yeah, this overarching smugness. It's the worst thing. But this is the thing, though, and this is, I think, like a great success of the film. It sells you so hard on hating the kids. Mm. Like, genuinely from word go, I'm just like, oh, you're all cunts. Like, I just like, I just like, I really want somebody to just like kill the shit out of you at the end of this. <laughs> and you really are willing that from word go. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. And I think that, like I say, a lot of creepy kid stuff before this and after it is done by implication. Yeah. And it's done off camera. And you're like, oh, did I do that type stuff? Whereas this film commits so hard to be like, oh, not only are these kids like utter little bastards, but also like they've got brains in their head. Yeah, you know, like they're manip- like they're manipulative. Like they do these insidious, awful things, and it so successfully sells the creepiness of it in a way that so many films that try to do this gets wrong. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I mean, like Joyce being stalked around the junkyard by the car is quite funny. Sure, but she eventually escapes from uh, from the situation. And next up, I was just immediately like, you see Curtis sneaking out in the dead of night. And I think that like at this point you see a real, and I'm not saying that there's a gear shift towards them being sociopaths because we knew that already. But I think that what you see next with Curtis is genuinely like really chilling because you see him creeping out and he heads round to uh, Joyce and Timmy's house because he's obviously starting to realise that there may be a loose end that needs tied off. Mm-hmm. So he's got the gun that he'd stolen from the previous scene and he's, primed to fire that in the window and just wipe them both out until he's caught in a set of headlights and he flees but i think that where you see a real break in the mo and a real shift towards like broader sociopathy is that when he flees the scene and he can't do these murders and everybody that's been killed or everybody that's been a target so far has been tangential to their group like are loosely connected to them but when he can't get this murder here or this double murder he walks back out into the street he sees this couple who are about to start shagging in a van 
and he just busts the back door open and kills them both. There's a lot about the lead up to this and the actual scene itself, which is quite disturbing. Obviously, there's more stuff where they're watching um, Beverly kissing her boyfriend here. This is around the same time, yeah, you're right. Yeah, uh, who's played by Michael Dudikoff, who, of course, was the American ninja. And then you get the first kind of hint that maybe Joyce is unraveling the, the kind of astrological weirdness of it all by saying that Saturn was kind of hidden or something on the night that these kids were born and Saturn directly affects people's emotions and then these kids might have problems with their emotions or none at all mm-hmm. and then that is perfectly illustrated by this horrible scene at the van where Curtis peers in this van and watches this couple fucking in the van the guy by the way seems to come in seconds yeah mm-hmm. yep definitely one pump wonder <laughs> a one and done yep exactly um it would have been so easy for this scene to be really silly mm-hmm. uh the notion of this 10 year old bespectacled kid who dresses like an old man like an accountant like an accountant yeah like busting in the back of this van and killing this couple there are a million iterations of this that would have been really dumb that is not um, that is seriously dark it's so chilling like um it works so well genuinely i mean like i'm not gonna save it till the end like i fucking love this film <laughs> like, and, and i think that this is like such a great indicator of what you're really dealing with here and i think it's also a great indicator of exactly how disinterested the filmmakers are with offending people or even kind of getting on the wrong side of people's sensibilities this is a dark nasty little film it, i mean like it doesn't concern itself with preserving anybody's preconceptions about the innocence of children or anything like that and yeah. i think that it, it, it's all infinitely to its betterment that it does that like i just i just like i say i just love the fact that it leans so hard into the fact that these kids are evil Mm-hmm. and it doesn't shy away at all from showing you that and i think that like i say there are so many opportunities where this could play in a silly way but i mean i'm not gonna lie like so much of the time when i was watching this back you know how it works when we watch things back you're looking for opportunities where you could find a laugh and things like that and there are so few instances where you can really do that like so much of this is legitimately really creepy and really kind of uh, disquieting oh i'm sorry <laughs> like i say it's it's to the film's betterment that it does that what i think is funny next is that we see joyce round at beverly's house and she rats out debbie in the spy hole to beverly beverly's like oh fuck these kids have been watching me undress and joyce is still just like lol yeah also she doesn't seal it it's true she has has the power to end it in that moment and she just chooses not to next up it is birthday party time for the shit triplets (laughs) and debbie's mom uh, dials up the party atmosphere by giving an impassioned speech about her dead husband (laughs) i also want to talk really briefly because and i think briefly is appropriate because he's in the frame for like 20 seconds but during the time where we get the scope of this weird kids party that's going on Mm -hmm. uh, we get a quick look at the clown did you spot the clown no the clown is the weirdest fucking guy you genuinely see him for like no time at all it's a very it's an absolute blinking you miss it thing if you were looking down to write a note you'd have missed it okay he looks like somebody from motley Crue in like a kind of a super tight gym shirt with like weird kiss makeup doing close-up magic and balloon shit for children but I remember looking at him and I was like, oh, God, pedo. <laughs> but then you never see him again. I, just, I assumed he'd figure because he looked so outwardly shady. There's so much about clowning that screams pedo. Like, you know what? You're not wrong. I feel like that's society's fault more than it is clowns' fault. Oh, absolutely. But it is and, true. And I don't want clowns to come for me here. Like, I de- <laughs> honestly, I definitely don't because I don't, I'm not scared of you, but I don't trust you. <laughs> I was going to say because of your massive chorophobia. And I was going to also say, I'm not a big fan of magic either. So a clown that does magic, that sets alarm bells ringing. 
Keep your distance. Again, I think this is really cool because the kids gear shift from just regular murders to actual psychological warfare here because Curtis kind of gaslights Joyce into thinking that he poisoned the cake. That's right. Now, this is total genius, in my opinion, because he makes it look like he's poisoned icing on the yeah, cake, as it were. Yeah. And uh, so Joyce races out, hysterically outs Curtis as a murderer and this awful Machiavellian little devil child. And obviously, it's totally groundless, which means that anything that she'll say after this is going to be discounted as the ramblings of a crazy woman and puts Curtis in the clear. Yeah, because what Curtis does to kind of prove his point is he eats some of the cake, eats some of the icing, proving that it's not been poisoned. Um, and she, all she does is just look absolutely fucking mental. Masterstroke. I love yeah. the entire way this played out because it totally also it leans so hard into my hatred of Curtis as well. Because everyone else is totally under the illusion that these kids are, and I quote, special children. Like Absolutely. Everyone thinks they're absolute gems because obviously Debbie's really pretty, everyone likes her, Curtis is like a, this genius electronics wizard. I don't know what Steve does. Don't really care. Uh, Steve's a kind of non-entity. Uh, Steve does feel a bit underplayed. The more we talk about it, the more I realise that. Yeah, and it's not enough to say that he's the heavy. Because heavy, to me, just sounds like goon. And you could get any kid to be a goon. I guess that's true, yeah. If you were Debbie and you said to any kid at that school, listen, if you help me and Curtis with these murders, I'll let you look through the hole at my sister getting undressed for free. You'd have a queue of potential murderous children. I mean, that is probably true, in fairness. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I think that it's fair to say that Stephen is the most underwritten of the antagonists. I think that's fair, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Off the back of this, so like I say, that, that plays out and Joyce is very much framed as being this kind of like overparanoid crazy person. The next thing that happens is that uh, Joyce gets uh, jump-scared by the reintroduction slash introduction of Paul, her hitherto unreferenced boyfriend. Now, he emerges so abruptly from the ether, it reminds me of, um, you know, Stephen in the room. Sure, yeah, yeah, at the party at the end. Yeah, like, you know, like when that cast member leaves midway through the production and they have to just replace him with someone. So it's just like a hitherto unknown character that turns up and says, oh my God, and you're expected to just listen to him as though he's been a character the entire time. When Paul shows up, I was like, I kind of felt the same way about this. They have a conversation about the future at this point that I'm really not invested in because I can't be expected to care about Paul. And also, you want to just cannonball onto the next scene of those kids being horrible. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, like this, this, this feels a little bit like padding because Paul does not figure even remotely in the later outcome of this. Like, you, like I, I feel like this is, uh, this is introduced as a strand, mostly to flesh out the character of Joyce, which I guess is kind of commendable in a way. But also, yeah, does not serve the outcome in any conceivable way. But also, this is weird in a way because we know, right, that Joyce and Timmy's parents are on vacation. But they could be back at any time. Joyce is telling them to take their time, um, stay away as long as you want, kind of thing. Yeah. She gets her younger brother to essentially keep an eye out and keep watch while she goes and fucks her boyfriend. Yeah, pretty much. That is weird, isn't it? Uh, he's like, oh, mum and dad told you to look out for me and they told me to look out for you. And she's like, well, how about you look out for me in your room with the door shut? You can borrow my big giant headphones. <laughs> exactly um next up debbie calculated as she is not an 100 percent meticulous uh murderess because she has kept this kind of morbid scrapbook of all the people that she and they have murdered including her dad which beverly happens on at this point so she shows it to the mom like she's very evasive we're used to that she blames curtis so the mom bans curtis from coming around orders beverly to burn the scrapbook 
it doesn't feel at this point that Beverly's connected the dots that they have actually done the murders. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also think this scene's really dark and really chilling as well. Like the way Debbie behaves here when pretty much she's confronted about anything. Her default setting is kill you. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. There is so much room for her to absolve herself from these things by other means. Yeah. She doesn't have to kill Beverly in this point, but she does. She didn't have to kill her dad. This is also true. But I think that also, this sequence is great. Because she calls Curtis and kind of orders an assembly of these kids at the house. Mm -hmm. But she kills Beverly after what feels like the million sequence of her getting dressed, to be honest. Um, (laughs) But uh, she kills her with a bow and arrow fired through Chekhov's spy hole. I think that this is great. When you see that she's kind of aiming the bow and arrow, it's like, oh God, she's going to kill her with a bow and arrow. As she approaches the spy hole, she's like, oh my God, is she going to get this through her face? And I think that the way that it builds up to it is genuinely like, I found myself squirming at it in a way that I wasn't ready to. It's actually a really clever build up because this isn't her first kind of attempt at murdering her sister because Beverly takes the scrapbook and burns it. And while she's down by the fire, like Debbie approaches her, presumably to kill her with a poker. That's right. Yeah, yeah, of course. And Beverly catches her in the act. So like the actor then shooting her with the bow and arrow is like right okay that's one thing out the way how am i going to kill her now um so it's just moving from one plan to the next plan to the next plan and then once she finally shoots her sister in the eye with that bow and arrow she calls her little weirdo pals over to come and help her yeah i, th- I think this is really cool like like i say i mean like genuinely i find the sequence really unsettling there's loads of things in this that got under my skin uh in a way that i didn't expect it to and this is right up there debbie cleans up the crime scene while her kind of like goons dispose of the body <laughs> And then we're off to another anguished funeral for Debbie's poor mum. This woman has lost her husband and daughter in a matter of days. She understandably clears off for a bit to clear her head. Yeah, she checks into the hospital from the beginning. Yeah, and honestly, who can blame her? So these three bastards try to strangle (laughs) another kid at this point. Joyce intervenes. I still feel like Joyce a little bit slow on the uptake. Yeah. she's. I think that she's been adjacent to them doing weird shit often enough for her to be a little bit savvier about the fact that they might have done some of the murdering. But I think also if I was in her shoes, I would be reluctant to lay the blame for these multiple deaths at the foot of 10-year-olds, regardless of how confident I was in that theory. Well, I mean, th- this scene, I'd say, is pretty definitive. because I actually really love this scene when they're uh, strangling that kid with the, the hose and Joyce is working in the garden and you, you just see the uh, the sprinkler just getting pulled along the garden. It's really cool. It's a really, really smart visual trick. And like you say, like a really dark visual as well. And again, she catches them right in the act of doing it. And the first thing that Debbie does is try to absolve herself of any involvement. Yep. She's immediately like, oh, stop it. You'll hurt her and all that kind of thing. It's like, yep, it's great. It's just great again. <laughs> What I would say, Joyce, at this point, I would not be touching this with a 40-foot pole. Debbie comes over in the next scene, says, oh, uh, my parents are away. Can you and Timmy come over and babysit? And Joyce is immediately like, yeah, sure. No chance. No, I'd be like, fuck off. I'd be like, yep. Fuck no, off, it's like, you it's like, little mutant. Yep, like, world's full of babysitters for literally anyone else. Get the <laughs> fuck away from me. But they go there. It is transparently a trap. We see them cutting the burglar alarm in the phone line. I would say again, like in terms of building up like foreboding for the final scene, this sets up really, really nicely. Mm. Uh, so after the babysitting kicks off, they turn up. Everything is normal for a bit. Curtis and Steve descend. Curtis has a gun. Not so savvy a shot this time. No, well, he probably would have killed Joyce, but Timmy wakes up just in time to shout and warn her. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, my favorite shot of the film, Joyce wipes Debbie out with a lamp. 
Oh, I love that Derry keeps popping out from places with ropes. Yeah, it's class, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. This this entire confrontation plays out really, really nicely. I think this, considering my general hatred for hunt and chase sequences, mm. this one is so good because rather than being protracted and occupying an entire third act, it's compacted into about two and a half minutes, but has loads of really cool set pieces in that time. Yeah, yeah, because they they run away from that smirking little creep with the specs who's just constantly firing after them. They barricade yep. themselves in a room. Debbie's shooting arrows through the hole in the wall, which, like I said, if it had been blocked up, wouldn't have been an issue. Nope. Um, but Could then, have been avoided. Yeah, then Stephen manages to break into the room. Like He gets gross fish tank water in his face, which I think might be bad for you. Yeah, I mean, like it was a little bit disappointing to me that when, when Joyce was savvy enough to pick up the fish tank full of water, when Stephen eventually burst through the door, she just soaked him rather than just using it to cave his head in. Yeah, but she soaks him enough to distract him and then they lock him in a like a flight case. Pretty much a flight case, yeah. Curtis is out of ammo. Timmy sees his chance and starts gleefully punching the crap out of him, which I thought was really satisfying. They hogtie Curtis. At this point, I just remember thinking that I was like, this film is crackers. <laughs> it really, like, really is. It's like there is so much kid-on-kid violence in this film and kid-on-everyone-else violence and everyone-else-on-kid violence. Um, Debbie escapes, as she always does. Curtis and Steve are arrested. Mm. And at this point, I guess we're kind of greeted with what would be a de facto happy ending. Only in so much as we know that Curtis and Stephen are... They've been caught. They're out of the picture now. Curtis manages to squeeze in one last smirk. Um, I thought it was a, tri- a trifle unnecessary to have his like weeping family there watching him be taken to hospital. Yeah, probably a little bit excessive, I would say. The kind of coda to this film... I think it's really good as well. It's really great. It's class, yeah. So like, it's it's worth jumping to that because, like I say, Curtis and Steve are taken away. We don't understand what becomes of them. Presumably, there's some measure of justice awaiting them. Electric chair. I mean, ideally. I mean, ideally, I would like to have seen that happen in real time, but, you know, I can't have it all. But we realise that the mum, the anguished, tortured mum, has taken Debbie away and they've changed identities. The mum is under no illusions as to uh, Debbie's criminal past, evidently. The way she's talking about it here. She understands that she's complicit or responsible for everything that we've seen happen in this film. Debbie vows to be like a good girl from now on, air quotes. Uh, They drive away and we see a trucker buried under the wheel of his vehicle. Yeah. And it's a great parting shot and a great end to a great film. I would watch, like, I I think this was obviously transparently setting up for a sequel that presumably never materialised. It didn't. No, you're right. I would watch the living daylights out of a sequel to this. Like, even if you were to make one now when Debbie was like 45 and had a kid of her own or something like that, like, I would watch any iteration of this again. <laughs> like, uh, I don't mind telling you, Andy, like, this, this, you've picked some crackers in your time. You historically pick better ones than me in terms of things that will be better received by both of us. Like, I absolutely love this film wow i'm so like, glad it's it's right up there with my favorites of the things that you've chosen like i just like pretty much from word go certainly from when you meet the kids i would say uh-huh. um my curiosity was peaked and then i just like i was very much along for the ride after that and i think that like i say there are so many set pieces in this that could be played for silliness and it so consciously doesn't do that and it leans and i think that half the reason that this succeeds so much in terms of just generally being this really creepy effort in general is that it's just so unapologetic about the fact that these kids are just irredeemable monsters. Tots. Yeah, and like, but not in this kind of like, you know, the way that cinematic creepy kids are generally framed, where like they're over innocent and you know that they're up to something. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. and things like that. It's like it's just you see so much of their darkness and you see so much of the innocence that they present to other people. And I don't know. I just think it's it's really interesting. I haven't seen enough films to comment on whether or not this is unique to this or if it's something that had been done before or since. But I just enjoyed hating those characters so much. I'm so glad you enjoyed this, Mitch. This is one that I thought... Uh, I know you kind of touched on it earlier, but it is a kind of super bleak film, and I'm like, right, is this going to be something that we're going to be able to talk about and laugh about? Is it something that Mitch is going to like? or something that Mitch? It's always a question, is it something that Mitch is going to like or loathe? Um, but I was fairly confident that you would like this, and I'm so glad that it, you, you liked it as much as you did. Um, it's, nowadays, with, with films like um, The Children Out There, they would probably have showed these kids being killed. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess so. But I also understand why that wasn't the done thing at the time. Like, I get, like, I get why that didn't happen. And I think that, like, this film is without depicting that kind of thing. I think that this is about as dark an iteration of this story as it could have been. Oh, without those kids dying, those kids do enough as children that you would be like, "This is a bad film." Like, do you know what I mean? Like, this is a like a nasty film. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like it's it's a film that you would probably shy away from showing your own kids, for example. Well, yeah, you don't want to give them ideas. Like, <laughs> don't show this to Nathan until he's thirty. I can't promise that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like I don't mind telling you. I mean, like this is a resounding success, possibly, possibly your greatest success. I would say my finest um, accomplishment. Potentially, I would say, yeah. It, like this is your rec three. <laughs> wow okay wow i would i would say um yeah no i i love this and um i am really really excited to hear what uh the listeners think of this as well because it is it's gen like if you've heard this and you haven't watched the film yet it's um certainly for uk listeners it's very easily accessible you can get this on amazon prime in the uk it's where i got it from uh and i would 100 percent recommend that you do that this is great I, I i loved it yeah and if you're still a fan of physical media it's out via 88 films in the UK on Blu-ray. Um, oh, nice. It's, okay. it's absolutely worth it. It's, it really is a film that, from the first time I watched it, I thought, this is a really great little film. It's super dark. It's nasty in a way that is still quite playful. Apparently, it was originally going to be much darker and much gorier, and they cut a lot of it out. I think that the cut that you see gets the balance spawn. Yeah. I think that like I think that if it had gone any if it leaned any darker into it, I think that, that some of the kind of more playful elements of it wouldn't have landed. I think that each one does enough to serve the other. I would say. Okay, that's fair. Um, but uh, yeah, um, I just think it's a really great film, um, and it's a film that I've watched a lot of times in the kind of ten years since I first saw it, and it's a film I'm going to keep watching because I really do think it's a a good little film. I 100% will revisit this. Um, I also have this idea that when I don't change addresses every three months and I have a more permanent address, I'm going to start stocking up on physical media of kind of cool collector's editions of films that I love. Oh, lovely. And uh, But like this is kind of like a like a medium-term goal for me. But it's like, you know, it's like when I, I'm living somewhere that I think that I'll be living there for quite a bit, it's like, right, I'm going to start stocking up on things. And I think that this is one of those things where it's like, yeah, you know what? I would like to own a nice version of this that I can revisit whenever I feel like, much like you're going to. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to keep enthusing about it. I'm not going to keep feeding your ego about how good a selection this was. This was just a really enjoyable one that I had a great time with. I'm so glad. However, we want to know what you think of this. 
And there are loads of ways that you can get in touch and let us know. Facebook and Instagram, we're Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC. You can email scenes at gmail.com. And you can join in the ever-livening discussion on our Facebook group, The Chud Locker. Yeah, and check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Strong Language Violent Scenes. We have got a lot of cool stuff on our Patreon. There's a lot of cool stuff that you can listen to there already. This weekend, tomorrow in fact, if you're listening on release date, we are doing a live watch along exclusively for Patreon listeners. Yeah, cannot wait for that. It's been too long since we've done one of those. Really excited to catch up with everybody and inevitably have a few drinks afterwards as well. If you're interested, get involved. Starts from £2. Yeah, and it's not too late to get in on that very watch along if you join in now. <laughs> Absolutely. However, we will be back in the main feeds this Monday with another mini-sode for your ears. Doing all the usual things there. I am closing in on the final chapter of the 90s side quest. I'm now trying to kind of like turn my attentions towards picking a good closer. I've got to say, Mitch, I've been compiling a small list of animal-related films. Good, good. I'm pleased to hear it. Pleased to hear it because we're, yeah, we're straight swapping, passing the torch on the side quest very soon indeed. However, this week we'll be talking about what we've been watching. We will be taking a look at your feedback as well. We'll be playing Mitch's pitches. We'll be letting you know everything you need to know about next week's episode. I feel like every time we talk about next week's episode, I say it's something worth getting excited about. But this month, honestly front to back really exciting stuff yeah october's shaping up to be an absolute beast of a month all that kicks off on monday with the next mini so join us then if you can in the meantime don't forget it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds goodbye bye guys you've been listening to strong language and violent scenes with andy stewart and mitch bain strong language and violent scenes theme by mitch bain production and artwork by andy stewart find us on stitcher itunes spotify google podcasts and podbean